0: You can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. So good to see you here this morning. It's um, so good to fellowship with uh, with other believers and uh, have such a, a common bond in Jesus Christ, uh, brothers and sisters, and uh, just wonderful. 1 Corinthians 14. We are finishing today a long, long section on worship that began all the way back in chapter number 11. The Corinthian church had a multitude of worship problems, public worship problems. And Paul's been addressing these, as I said, since chapter number 11. And Paul, if you think about it, remember back, Paul talked about head coverings, uh, he talked about the Lord's Supper. Spiritual gifts, how they weren't being loving in their exercise of all these, and now he's been talking about prophecy and tongues, and and one of the problems that plagued the church in Corinth is their elevation of the gift of tongues to the point where it was their their practice of the gift of tongues was divisive. That's what was going on, and Paul corrected them. We learned last week by pointing out that prophecy is preferred, and prophecy, twofold, there's only one form of prophecy today, and I'll just go ahead and explain that real quick. Back during the time of of Paul, um, early church time, the gift of prophecy could be a new revelation from God, and the reason for that is the... the, um, The New Testament canon had not been completed at that point. uh, The new revelation faded completely once the canon was complete. There was no no, uh, point to it. Today, what we would call the gift of prophecy would simply be the preaching of God's Word. right? So um, Paul corrected him by pointing out that the preaching of the Word is greater than tongues because it builds the church. Tongues, on the other hand builds the person speaking in tongues. Said another way, public worship is for edification, for the building up of the church. And that was the first point we saw last week. Now I was not able to finish, and I'm going to finish that today, what I started last week. And so today I want to cover the second reason that prophecy is greater than tongues, and that is because public worship is for evangelism. It's the lost, and we'll see as we get into that, hear the Word of God. They have the opportunity to hear the actual Word of God, and the Holy Spirit can work in their hearts that way. Then we're going to cover some other disorders in the worship. If you'll stand with me, we'll read, beginning in verse number 20, beginning in verse number 20 of chapter number 14. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds?" But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So there's one. Then he goes on, next section, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, and an interpretation Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Do you notice that? Tongue speakers are to keep silent. Number two, he says, if there's no one to interpret, Let each of them keep silent. There it is again in the church, and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. There's another occurrence of that phrase, let them be silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophet's. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent. There's a fourth instance of that little phrase, keep silent. In the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. I'll pause for just a second. Notice the repetitiveness of that word, keep silent, because this is a broad issue that's going on in church, and and it's going to help in the interpretation of a difficult passage in part of this in just a moment, okay? Um, Let's see, where was I? The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or... Are you the only ones to which it is reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not require this, he is not recognized. So then, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And that's the key right there to the whole passage. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for... The reading of the Word of God. We thank you for the instruction, the practicality, and the way that you tell us how you are pleased in the worship and how uh, strongly you want your Word to be preached and heard. And I pray that it will be heard today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. So Paul starts out in verse number 20 with something of a rebuke for the Corinthians. Look at verse number 20 with me. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Let me me paraphrase for you. Ready? It's time to grow up, guys. That's what he's saying. The way you're playing with the sensational and the spectacular, trying to make yourselves look like spiritual big shots, frankly, guys, it's juvenile. That's basically what he's telling them. That's what he's telling them, it's juvenile, mature understanding this whole question of tongues and prophecy, and what is healthy and good for the church, um, and a good church, and when you're thinking about the church and what's appropriate for the church, you think in terms of edification, or I would say, building up. So you ask this question, will this be a blessing to someone else? Does that make sense? We should always be saying that in the church. Will my words be a blessing to someone else? Have you ever been around the complainer? I always call them troubleshooters. That's a nice way of, of saying it. But uh, uh, there are some people who can point out everybody else's mistake. and And while I make light of it, it's very grievous to me when I hear a complainer and I generally challenge them because... Ephesians tells us that our words should build up. And if you don't have something good to say about someone else, guess what? The phrase is what? Don't say it. You're not building someone up. Now, um, and, And so it's important to understand that. But Paul teaches us what he thinks about evangelism in this little passage. And the question, instead of, what will others be built up in this section 20 to 25 he's asking this question what will non-christians make of all this if an unbeliever comes into among if he comes in among us how will we worship and how will it sound to them what will they think about it and so he quotes a prophecy from isaiah chapter 28 in verse number 11 look at what he says In verse number 21, the way he quotes it, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, Isaiah 28, verse number uh, 8 to 11, in that section, actually 8 to 14 or so, it's a pronunciation of judgment upon the Israelites. They refused to listen to the prophets the plain warnings of God in their own Hebrew language and so therefore God said you're not going to hear my voice of warning you will hear my voice of judgment but it's not going to come in plain words it's going to come by the unintelligible tongue of the Assyrians that's the passage that Paul uses uh, right here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14 and Israel did not understand Old Testament Israel did not understand the the language of the Assyrians. And Paul makes an application. Now, how is Paul going to apply that passage to church? Well, look at verses number 22 and 23 with me. What does he say? Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter will they not say you are out of your minds? And what is he saying here? His application is this. Just as the experience of Isaiah 28, 11, and 12 did not result in the conversion of the Israelites, the speaking in tongues in the church will not result in the conversion of the lost. And that's that simple? Very simple what he's trying to say here. Paul indicates that the use of the gift of tongues tends to result not in the conversion of unbelievers, but rather in further alienation. He says they're going to come in, they're going to hear all these people babbling in tongues, and they're going to say, don't go to that church, those people are crazy. Literally what he's saying. You're out of your minds. So what is the church to do? Well, the church, in verses 24 and 25, I won't read them again, the church is to prophesy, to speak plainly, to get the word of God to the ears of the hearers. And God then can be glorified by the conversion of unbelievers. Now, I'm going to slide this in here. This is free. This is not in my sermon notes. Uh, the, The worship service on Sunday morning is not an evangelistic service. This is a worship service. Now, God, in His tremendous power, can use any passage of Scripture to bring about the conversion of an unbeliever. You know that? I I have friends. I have a friend who was converted by hearing a part of a verse in Ecclesiastes, and God used that to remind him of the gospel that he previously heard, and he got saved. It can happen. God is so absolutely powerful. And he works everything together. We worship here together, and in our worship and in the plain speaking and reading and preaching of the Word of God, the unsaved here and the unsaved are converted as well. We serve a wonderful God, don't we? So Sunday morning worship services are meant to edify the body and to evangelize the lost. Now let's go on to other public worship disorders. Uh, Paul makes the statement that public worship should be orderly. And he makes application of everything he said about spiritual gifts and public worship. And he does it in three points in this passage. The way that they were conducting themselves contributed to chaos. And as a result, the body was not being built up during worship. Let me say that one more time. The way that they were conducting themselves in worship contributed to chaos. And as a result, the body was not built up. And so his three main points that we're going to cover now are these. He, first, he, he tells the prophets, men and women prophets, by the way. This is not just men. This is men and women prophets, not to talk all at once, be silent in the church. Then the second thing he says, to all the tongue speakers, men and women tongue speakers, they're told... If there is not an interpreter, be silent in the church. And then he makes a third application, and he says, Married women with Christian husbands who are in attendance of the church, don't ask questions during the worship and don't chat. Ask your husbands at home, be silent in the church. Those are three points that he makes very clear in, in this passage of Scripture. But he starts out with an assertion. He makes an assertion, and then he jumps into these three points, and his assertion is this, that everything that we do in the worship service should build up. Look at what he says. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Did you notice a theme all the way through verse, chapter number 14? What is it? Build up. Build one another up. Worship services should build up. And so each one, each one has something to contribute. And dare I say, each one of you have something to contribute to a worship service. We have, under the direction of Mike, we have men and women up here who are leading the hymns. We had hymns today, right? Okay? Leading the hymns, leading the worship music. We have... um, a lesson. Right now, um, we have a revelation in that we read the revelation, right? A word from God, if you want to use that. Um, uh, there are tongues, not today, but there were, and an interpreter. These are all parts of orderly worship during the time at Corinth. But he says, "Let everything build up." That's 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 the 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 mode in which we should view each of the three instructions. And so let's go to the the one the tongue speakers. Verse number 27, 28, he lays out how um, tongues are to be handled. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And so Paul limits the tongue speakers to two or three only, first of all. Okay, don't take over the service with all your tongue speaking. Number two, the key is that tongue speakers are to speak one at a time and not simultaneously. So obviously they were just, they're just getting up and speaking in tongues at once, which apparently that's what was causing the trouble or the confusion. He uses the word confusion in here. I want to remind you that when somebody spoke in tongues in this passage, I believe that what he's talking about in the the gift of tongues is a local dialect. Okay? And they're, they're speaking a local dialect. Remember, most likely the service in Corinth is being conducted in Greek. And everybody had their local dialect. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. And they're just praising God and praying in their local dialects. And if you're not interpreting what somebody's saying, then you're completely lost. How many have been to a worship service overseas? Uh, Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, Did you have an an interpreter? Sometimes you didn't, I'm sure, right? And when you didn't have an interpreter, you're just completely confused. You're just shaking your head going, yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't know what you're saying, but, uh, you know, I'm happy for you, right? And that's apparently what was going on in, in Corinth. So if there is no one there to interpret the tongue, then the tongue speakers to do what? be silent and pray and praise God privately. Now why and here's the question, this is a rhetorical question. Why would God give his people a supernatural utterance which they do not understand? Um, it, it could be it could be a, a intelligible tongue that the speaker himself didn't understand or it could be a tongue that the speaker understood that nobody else does yet why would he do that and withhold the gift of interpretation so that the person uh, must remain silent think about that one i'm not going to answer it we're going to move on let's talk about prophets now he turns his attention to prophets Look at what he says, verses 29 and 30. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another setting there, let the first be silent. Now remember, at this time, I said this already, new revelation was still being given to the church. Corinthians is one of the earliest of the New Testament books. And so miracles... And tongues and revelations were given to confirm that the person speaking is hearing from the Lord. This is apostolic authority, so to speak, if you want to say that. And so God was sending his word through prophets to the church. And it was vital that the churches understood and had a place for the prophetic ministry that God ordained. But here's the problem. Those who, compl- who claim to be prophets had to be carefully evaluated. Is it any different today? What they said had to be carefully judged in light of everything else God said in Scripture. It's still true today, isn't it? Because what can occur and often occurs is a so-called prophet might begin to exercise a terrible tyranny over the consciences of those in the church with all, with all kinds of crazy ideas being passed off as the word of God. We've heard those things, haven't we, before? That still happens today. Some charlatan with a winning personality... With, with the gift of gab, begins to claim special insight, and he begins to lead people astray. But Paul wants us to be like the Bereans. Remember the Bereans? They were more noble than those in, in Thessalonica who uh, they searched the Word to make sure these things are true, and that's what we have to do. And Paul wants us to practice biblical discernment and to study all that we are hearing in light of the Word of God so that we may not stray from the truth. Let me say this, y'all need to be doing that to me too. I can assure you, if I stand up here and say something that's a little bit off, uh, the elders are going to be talking to me about it. And I would expect that. Right? But since everything I say is absolutely right, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) So apparently the the prophets at Corinth felt that they had to compete for airtime with one another, and they began speaking over the top of one another. That's what was going on. They were speaking over the top of one another, interrupting each other. Instead of edifying and encouraging each other, they were generating frustration and discord. Well, there's no need for that. Paul said in verse number 30, just speak in turn. That's all you got to do speak in turn, Right? for you can look at verse number 31 for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn to be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets again the purpose for such precise instruction is to end the mass confusion that was leading to a disruption in the worship service and to provide an orderly procedure in which everyone present in the church might be instructed and encouraged or or the word is edified why why, why, why? Verse number 33. For God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. Now, I, unfortunately, a lot of the churches in the West swing the other way where we have to schedule to the second every part of our worship service. And nobody, nobody has any, like last, I think it was last Sunday at the end of the close of the service, uh, some of us were clapping. I think half the rest of the congregation was afraid to clap. It's okay. It's okay to clap. That's not chaos. That's that's showing the Lord that we love Him and we're excited about what we heard from the Word of God, right? And so, um, I, I was in a church um, that. Um, let me let me back up. I was I, when I was a college student. There was a church that was infamous in Greenville, South Carolina, for the way that their worship services were, and. Um, we, on Sunday nights, several times I went to the church not to hear the preaching, but just to watch the show. Their services literally were over two hours long. And I'll never forget um, the first time I walked in there. So this uh, church is packed, several hundred people in this church. I'm not going to name the church, but uh, we had a nickname for it. And um, there's a guy in the front in a wheelchair. And during the song service, all of a sudden, he jumps up, and he runs down the side, all the way around the back, because I'm thinking of the pulpits up there, and then back around the front. And somebody who was, a, I guess, a regular attendant in the church leaned over to me. I was a visitor. They knew that said, that's the first time he's ever walked. And in the middle of the service, the preacher would be preaching, and somebody would just stand up and just start shouting and dancing a jig and everything else. And to me, to me, that detracts from the preaching of the Word of God. And so we can be excited, but at the same time, make sure that we're not becoming the center of attention. Now we come to a, a difficult passage, okay? This is a misunderstood and misapplied section of Scripture. Let's read it beginning in verse number 34. Ready? Um the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says if there's anything they desire to learn let their ask their husbands at home this is a very misunderstood passage of scripture and it's very misapplied and frankly it's very difficult to even know what is being said here. I'm going to give you in just a minute, I'm going to humbly propose what I think is going on here. Okay, But first, before we, to, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we've got to remember what it does not say. And what it does not say is found in chapter 11. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 5, We will see something here because what he's not saying is that women cannot speak or teach or sing or anything in the church. That's not what he's saying. Verse number five of chapter 11, that every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now that's a cultural, there's a part cultural, part universal application there. The cultural application is this, that in that society it was a shame or dishonor for a woman to have her head uncovered. That's the cultural part. The universal application is that Uh, Women are to submit to their husbands and submit to the authority in in the church. Now, remember, chapter 11 is public worship service. So he is very clear that it's okay for a woman to stand up and pray in a public worship service. Right? got a little quieter with that one. It's okay for a woman to teach. But, we'll see something in just a minute. Well, let me just go ahead and say it. The principle in chapter 11 is this. Whatever ministry role women play in public worship, it is done in submission to men. Make sense? And it's not, and I'll go through this again. I don't have to, but I will. Women are not inferior. It has all to do with order christ submitted to god is christ inferior to the father in no way it's just the best way there is no trinity if there's no distinction in roles there's no marriage and there's no order if there's no distinction in roles have you ever been involved in a project where it's loosely organized and everybody's the boss and it's just mass confusion right okay so so that's what he's not saying. What about verses 34 and 35? Turn back to chapter 14. What about 34 and 35? I'm going to humbly propose something here, so stick with me and see what you think. Corinth was the largest city in Greece. I don't know if you knew that or not. It was the largest city in Greece, and, and inevitably it was the most diverse. It had an extensive and large workforce and it required a great deal of slave labor. Now, how do you acquire slave labor back in the day? You conquer a nation, you take their people, and force them to work. Okay? By the time in Corinth, though, not being Athens, being Corinth, by this time, the Roman Empire has taken over, and so slaves are just bought and sold and that sort of thing. But Greek was the common language. Just like Russian was the USSR common language, Mandarin Chinese, and the uh, China, People's Republic of China, but there were all kinds of different dialects and language rolled into these two big nations, right? Same thing with the Roman Empire and in Corinth. And so for the lower classes, knowing just enough Greek to function on the job would have been vital, But here's a question, what about the women at home? Whether the families involved were slaves, traders, day laborers or skilled craftsmen, the languages spoken at home would have been numerous. Would you agree? They came from all over the empire. Added to this was the the problem of accent. Often when a public speaker is functioning in a second language, Even when that speaker is fluent, there can be great uh, difficulty in communication due to accent. And so you have somebody who the language being spoken is their second language, and they're speaking to somebody who the language is their second language, there's a greater degree of possibility of confusion, right? Okay? So you've got that added on. And when the speaker's words and phrases are not understood... A low buzz could break out in the sanctuary or in the home or wherever it is. What did he say? I didn't quite understand what he said. Okay? Now, Middle Eastern culture is an oral culture. Did you know that? It's oral. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, one missionary that I was reading this week who talked about this passage of Scripture said that he was a teacher in the Middle East. He, he lived in the Middle East for 46 years in different countries. And he said it didn't matter if it was in Egypt or if it was in Syria or if it was in Israel. When he was a teacher, he taught at a university. He would have the class's attention. He would be speaking. And then he would turn around to write on the chalkboard. And immediately there was a buzz in the class. They weren't being disrespectful, they were actually talking to one another about what was just said, and they were orally processing the information. That same man I was was, uh, referring to was in a village church in Egypt. Men sat on one side, women and children sat on the other, there was a big partition and there there was no public address system, there was no speakers or P.A., and it didn't take long during the sermon for the women and the children to begin chatting. You know, children are going to chat anyway. And then the women started talking amongst themselves about what was being said in the sermon. And finally, it became hard to hear. And one of the senior elders of the church stood up and shouted, Women are to remain silent in the church. And it calmed back down for about 10 minutes or so. And then it started back up, and he had to stand up and do the same thing again. It's a cultural thing that we have no, we have no comprehension, right? And so, if you think this is far-fetched, this idea, John Chrysostom, the church father from the 4th century, some of you know who I'm talking about when I use that name, he was preaching in the cathedral at Antioch. And this is what he was quoted as saying. Ready? He was talking about during the services, he said, you women chat more in church during the sermon than you do in the marketplace or in the baths. And so there's a cultural thing going on in in Corinth that I don't think we understand. And I think that um, that the combination of it being a second or third language, it being an oral culture... And the fact that uh, it was more likely that they're they're going to have a misunderstanding, they're leaning over their husband saying, I didn't understand. And so there can become a a low um, murmur in the church. Does that make sense? I want to add one more language feature here. Look at verse number 35. Verse number 35, Paul says, For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, shameful here in the west carries a different idea than it did than it does in the east with an honor shame culture in an honor shame culture in the mediterranean culture of paul's day and even now that shame honor society it was expected that a person would act honorably and avoid all things shameful so Paul was not telling them that women speaking in church was illegal, shameful. He was telling them, rather, it's maybe, maybe if we Victorian culture. In Victorian England, there were things that were improper. It was improper for somebody to do something. And so maybe you could say it like this, Uh, Ladies, it is improper to chat in church. That was the cultural ideal that Paul was saying. It's not that it was illegal. It was just improper. So with all that as a cultural background, considering chapter number 11, Paul is not forbidding women from participation. Rather, he is simply asking them to get their answers clarified at home. So that what? What's verse number 40 say? so that all things can be done decently and in order. Now, the three disruptions to the, the, the worship in the church, and they're all creating disorder. Does that make sense? When you see it in the context, I think that, that command makes very uh, good sense. So, prophecy people, be silent. Tongue people, be silent. Wives with believing husbands in the church, be silent. Why? Why? Why, why, why? Well, here's what's at stake, and this is what we need to see. I'm going to read the next section. You can read it again if you want. But the warning in verse number 38 is important. And here's why all this matters to Paul. He's not bothered by the messiness of the worship. He's upset because he knows the refusal to submit to God himself speaking in his word a persistent and obstinate refusal to recognize the authority of Scripture to bend before the authority of Christ will result in confusion, more than confusion and chaos and frustration on a Sunday morning Corinth. It will result in not being recognized, and not just by the church. It will result in a persistent life pattern of obstinate refusal to bend the knee to the authority of God speaking. God speaking through His Word. It will result in not being recognized even by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself when He comes to judge the living and the dead. To all who finally refuse His authority, To all who reject his word, to all who refuse to bend the knee, even those who use his name only to make much of themselves, he will say on the last day, depart from me. I never knew you. And so Paul's concern in all of this is that the, the church in Corinth and all believers submit To the Word of God? Are you submitting to the Word of God? Can you say, in all honesty, Jared, as best I know, I am submitting to God in His Word? Dear believer, do not begin a pattern of refusing to submit. Because what you may find down the road is that you are a professed believer and not an actual believer. Believers submit to the Word of God. And that is a great burden for the Apostle Paul. He wants us to be people of the book, people of the Word, people under the rule of Christ, to cultivate that Berean instinct that runs to the Scriptures to see if these things are so, that never strays from the Word, from the truth of God's Word revealed in the book. That's how we will be edified, and that's how we will be built up, and how all that we may do, both when we're together in public assembly to worship the Lord, and when we seek to serve Him day by day on our own, that we are submitting to Him, and we are honoring Christ So that when we get to heaven one day, he looks at us and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I thank you for your word. Some passages are very difficult for us to understand. And part of this is is one of those passages, Lord. But I pray that we'll take the word, that we will apply it to our public worship and to our private lives. Lord, search our hearts. Even right now, there might be someone who something has come to mind, and they they think it's just a coincidence. Lord, it's no coincidence. And so I ask that you will continue to work in their heart and help them to become pliable and moldable by the Holy Spirit and submit to your word in all areas of our lives.